The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Science Weekly. I'm Phoebe Weston and today we're continuing our celebration of a very important milestone at The Guardian, our 200th anniversary. We're marking the occasion with podcasts, videos and events you can take part in. Head to guardian.com forward slash 200 to discover more. Here on Science Weekly, we're taking a look at some of the biggest science stories from the past 200 years and how they've been covered, as well as thinking about the future. Yesterday, we explored the 1918 flu pandemic and how it relates to the coronavirus pandemic we're living through a century on. Today, we're focusing on a different story that defines our time, the climate crisis. For me, this is the most difficult challenge humanity's ever faced in the whole history of humanity. We are living our ancestors' dystopias, and we should appreciate that. We've left it really, really late. We'll be looking back at five cuttings from the Guardian's archive over the past few decades to see how our understanding of the science has changed, as well as how our attitudes and politics have shifted. And as we remain on course for three degrees of catastrophic warming, how we expect our reporting of the crisis to continue in the future. Joining me to unpack all this are three guests. Alice Bell, co-director of the climate change charity Possible and author of an upcoming book on the history of the climate crisis called Our Biggest Experiment. Naomi Oreskes, professor of history of science at Harvard University and author of Merchants of Doubt, how a handful of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco to global warming. And finally, Jonathan Watts, the Global Environment Editor of The Guardian. To kick things off, I'm going to share a cutting with you from April 1950, entitled Our Warmer World. There has emerged a fairly definite assurance that the weather is getting warmer, probably warmer than any time in the last 500 years. As long as the process does not proceed too rapidly, a melting of the polar ice caps would swamp all the existing ports in the world, the tendency may be regarded as welcome. It should help to offset the political climate in international affairs, which is not at present characterised by any marked geniality. There would be grave drawbacks to consistently favourable weather. We should be robbed of a standing topic of conversation. One of the most striking things to me about this extract is its flippancy. And I'm wondering, was that how most people were thinking about climate change back then? Alice, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, I mean, that's quite common for newspaper articles of the time. Um, it was something that people had been aware of for a few years. Before World War II, people who were measuring glaciers were reporting shrinkage. People had kind of been aware of a, of a warming. There's a, um, a newspaper cutting from, I think, some Australian newspaper uh, from like 1912 or something like that that occasionally goes viral. People sort of go, oh, look, we knew about global warming at the beginning of the 20th century. And that was, that was very marginal science back then. But by 1950, uh, the idea at least that the Earth was warming 
was pretty established. And yeah, that flippancy of tone was quite common as well. They still didn't think it was necessarily going to be bad. I think maybe because a lot of them lived in Northern Europe. Um, they maybe thought uh, coldness was you know, something to be avoided. I thought that was particularly interesting, also that reference to the Cold War, the idea that you know, the planet might warm and it might thaw the political situation. They definitely framed it in, in Cold War terms. And if you look at the early climate science work that was happening in the 50s, it, it was all thought about in terms of the Cold War situation. Now, that article doesn't mention the possible causes for rising temperatures. But seven years on, we've got an article from September 1957, which does. Threats to the ports of the world. Possible melting of polar ice caps. The carbon dioxide cycle, it is thought, could lead to the flooding of coastal cities and ports by AD 2000. The threat arises from the amount of carbon dioxide being poured into the atmosphere through ever-increasing industrialisation from factory chimneys and the exhaust pipes of vehicles. The resulting rise in temperature may be enough to melt the polar ice caps even more, and the level of the oceans could rise by about five feet by the end of the century. So Alice, when did scientists first make the link between carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels and global warming? What we now understand is the greenhouse effect. We had the basic science behind that in sort of the mid, uh, mid-19th century, the idea that if there was an atmosphere that was filled with carbon dioxide, then it could get very hot. But that was all theory. We now know, with the benefits of modern science, that the planet was already warming at that point. But for scientists at the time, it was all just kind of conjecture. And then around the turn of the century, you get people saying, oh, maybe fossil fuels would drive more of this of this warming. But again, it was kind of theory. And it, at first, it looked like there was very good laboratory evidence that would refute that. And then someone, a Guy Callender, a British scientist in the 1930s, went back to some of the data we had on carbon in the atmosphere. And he showed that in his life, time, which was about 40 years, so sort of kind of beginning of the 20th century, the earth had warmed by about a third of a degree. And he put that up against uh, growing carbon emissions. And he used that to to argue uh, this link between carbon emissions from fossil fuels and rising temperatures. And then in the 50s, people started to do a huge amount more research on it. We had computers, we had things like carbon dating. And also we had caused a lot more warming by that point. And Naomi, I'd like to bring you in here. This article and the previous one both focus on rising sea levels. Was that what people were mainly concerned about at the time? We know that scientists started seriously investigating the relationship between fossil fuels, atmospheric carbon dioxide and the warming of the planet in the mid-1950s. And one of the reasons why scientists stressed sea level rise was because it was one of the aspects of the problem that was already very well understood in the 1950s. And also because there was a burden in having to explain to people why global warming was a bad thing, because most people's instincts were to think, oh, warm is good. We like warm weather. And the article mentions ever-increasing industrialization. When did industry first clock on to the fact that fuel emissions were a major environmental issue? And also, how did they respond to that? We know that the business community was aware of this. We know they were aware of it in two senses. One, in that much of this was reported in the mass media. There were articles in mainstream newspapers in the United States. So we have every reason to believe that CEOs of corporations read the newspaper and were aware of the issue. But also we have documentary evidence from their own internal memorandums from trade organizations that they were already in the 1960s discussing this issue. And we also know that some companies, ExxonMobil is the most clearly documented, 
actually had their own internal research programs to better understand the question, and that their own scientists were telling them, certainly by the 1970s, uh, that this was a real problem, that it was likely to get worse, and that it would adversely affect the market environment for their products, namely fossil fuels. And John, just to bring you into the conversation, when do you think that the public's attitude began to shift on this issue? I think you really started to see a change in the 1960s. Up until that point, uh, I think there had been this, this widespread belief that science is going to fix everything, that there's nothing that's beyond uh, the, the brilliant human brain. So, you know, in the 1940s, you, you had atomic bombs and, and the, you know, this incredible power that humanity can unleash, this spectacular demonstration of science. Then in the late 1950s, uh, you had Sputnik and the fact that humanity can send devices up into space and all the science fiction TV shows of the time all depict this sort of, we're going to colonize the universe, um, we're going to work it out. But during the 60s in particular, you, you start to get a change in public opinion, you start to get a budding environmental movement that was partly tied to sort of counterculture music at that time. For, for me, this is really when the public or, or a certain element of the public really started to grapple with, with the issues, the downside of science. And so our next article seems to me a key moment. So this is in August 1981, and it's uh, a paper published in the journal Science led by James Hansen um, on the impact of increasing levels of CO2. Global flooding fear as sea rises. A strong warning that the world is overheating, the greenhouse effect caused by too much carbon dioxide, has been given by a team of American scientists. They stress there is still time to slow the trend, which they have discovered goes back more than a century, but they note slightly despairingly that it takes several decades to complete a change in fuel use. This makes climate change almost inevitable. There seems to be, as, as you've all discussed, there's a lot of evidence about what is happening and what the consequences are. Naomi, how did we get to this point? And would you say that we now had scientific consensus? There were certainly scientists who were trying hard to get attention to the issue, who reached out to political leaders. But in general, in the 60s and 70s, it's kind of a minority issue. It's not what most scientists are working on, and there's not a clear agreement of scientists on this issue, it begins to change, I think, in the late 70s. And when you use the word consensus, you have to be clear what you're saying there's a consensus about, that it's really a two-step process. By the late 70s, there's a consensus that man-made climate change will happen, but we don't yet know when. By the early 1990s, there's a consensus that it is happening now. It is underway. And of course, that's part of the motivation, the drive for the signing of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992. Alice, would you say by this point that we have scientific consensus? By 1981? Yeah, I mean, it's a joke sometimes. It's a kind of running joke, you know. We, we basically knew it by the end of the 70s. One of the things that's happened by 1981 is you did have a bit of a fight in the 70s between groups which were then called the warmists and the coolers, and sort of there was a sense that the climate was changing, but uh, they weren't necessarily sure if, if the effects of, of warming caused by fossil fuels was the dominant trend. And uh, that kind of 
calmed I mean you still see it in skeptic circles but scientifically it, it sort of changed in the 70s and it was established that it, yeah the world was warming and it was it was us it is fossil fuels um, you saw the coining of the phrase global warming in a paper by Wally Brooker in 1975 um, and a sense that we're looking back at really long trends. So people going up uh, into the Arctic and digging really, really deep into the ice to collect these ancient bubbles of, of air that have been trapped in ancient ice and looking at their chemical composition to be able to understand and unravel past climates and be able to put together really long data sets like that and, and see the context of what had been happening uh, in the world in that sort of relatively brief period of time of the few hundred years we've been actively burning lots of fossil fuels uh, and put it in a large context and go, yeah, it's burning, it's fossil fuels. And John, another thing that we see in this article is um, the comment that slightly despairingly it's going to get harder and harder to deal with the climate crisis the longer that we leave it. This uh, probably seems depress a depressingly familiar phrase to you. <laughs> um, uh, it certainly sounds familiar, yes. And there's no doubt if action had been taken in a serious way at that time, we would be in a lot better place today. Uh, to put all of this in context, for me, this is the most difficult challenge humanity's ever faced in the whole history of humanity. It's, it's multidimensional, it's global, it's intergenerational, it involves everything, absolutely everything. And so... I do wish they'd done a hell of a lot more early on. But at the same time, this is such a complex problem that I, I can sort of see why people wanted to understand more about it. I just, I, I just think that, that let's wait and see, let's, let's hope we can find a solution. That way of thinking has, has progressed for too long and, and we needed urgency uh, earlier on. But I think it was hard to generate the urgency when we couldn't yet feel the consequences. We might be told the odd heat wave is a sign, and it was, but most people, most of the time, in the part of the world that gets to make most of the decisions, did not feel the difference until far more recently. In a way, we're still, we still have the same sort of tendency to uh, set far away net zero targets rather than do something right away. But the big difference is now we're feeling it. People are feeling it and seeing it. And they will feel and see it much more in the future. So there, there's more urgency. And I think more is uh, happening now uh, as a result. Okay, thanks, John. And um, that leads on to our fourth cutting for today, which is looking at how some industries who were active climate deniers have now changed their position and accept the situation. But then perhaps at the same time, what they're continuing to do is pretty sinister all the same. And this is an article that was published in April 2021 by the environment editor, Damien Carrington. Some of the world's biggest fossil fuel companies have used advertising to greenwash their ongoing contribution to the climate crisis, according to files published by the environmental lawyer's client Earth. They described the practice as a great deception. Naomi, is greenwashing the modern equivalent of climate denial? Well, greenwashing isn't the equivalent of climate denial. Greenwashing is climate denial. What I've documented in my own work, and so have many other people now, is that there was an organized effort to push back, particularly in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom, 
to prevent action by questioning the science. And that's what we've been seeing from the last 30 years from the fossil fuel industry. And over the course of 30 years, it's taken different forms. They're very adept. They're very flexible. They also believe in recycling. They recycle old refuted arguments. And so we've seen greenwashing throughout. We've seen the claims that these companies are making meaningful efforts in the direction of sustainability. But every time you look closely at those claims, what you find is, well, that's what they are. They're just claims that the action to back up those claims is in most cases missing. Alice, I want to bring you in on what Naomi's just been saying, because your charity obviously looks at positive action, but how do you balance emphasizing what the individual can do without uh, removing responsibility from the big emitters like oil and gas companies? I mean, what we believe at Possible is that it's really important for us to act across a range of different ways at once. And this is something that people often say to me is, what one thing can I do to tackle climate change? What one, and they'll, they'll say, what one little thing? Because they're a bit scared I'm going to tell them they have to do something difficult. Um, and the problem is that we cut, you know, we, climate change is not going to be solved by people doing one little thing. But at the same time, it's not going to be solved by one big law either. Like, it's really vital that we pressure our, our government to do big laws. But that is plural, laws. Uh, but also at the same time it's going to need lots of us to do lots of different things too and one of the ways that we'll create the political change that we need to see is by changing cultures so this is not true of everybody in the world but I'm going to guess Guardian readers probably could cut their carbon footprint a bit and people who live in that richer 30% of the world have got some work they need to do. An academic at Sussex recently called them the polluter elite. Now, I don't think that any of us want to think of ourselves as the polluter elite, but we probably are. And part of taking action on climate change, I think, is for some of us to reflect on that and to think about what we can do. That kind of thing that sometimes gets dubbed individual action and gets sort of dismissed, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't be thinking like that because that's actually part of, that plays in and it's connected to um, to creating the kind of cultural change, which will also signal to our politicians that we need the larger changes. Can I, can I just add, add something to that? A somewhat different perspective in that I do think, yes, we have to do everything, but I do think there should be a degree of triage. We, we need to prioritise. And I think the individual actions, I endorse totally what Alice was saying, but I, I would just say that the distinction is that the priority has to be political and structural and going after the really big, emitting companies and organizations and and to try to change on a structural level otherwise i don't think we're we're ever going to move fast enough so so in that sense i think yes do everything but recognize that overall objective should be a political change or change on a political level so taxation and policy reform can really drive things I think what you're talking about now really nicely leads us on to our next cutting, which looks at the cultural and social aspects of dealing with climate change. This is from May 2019, and The Guardian changed its style guide to use the words climate emergency and climate crisis. Here is what the editor, Kath Viner, said. The phrase climate change, for example, sounds rather passive and gentle when what scientists are talking about is a catastrophe for humanity. So Alice, having just written a book on the history of climate change, does this represent a significant moment? And do you think we are putting our actions where our words are? 
I mean, the Guardian always likes to think it's making significant moments in language. It, I, it was an issue for me because I run a charity that works off the Guardian Style Guide. <laughs> so uh, like a lot of climate charities, we use your style guide and we're like, oh, OK. Um, I would say that I really welcomed it. I think there was a shift. Uh, there was a larger cultural shift that happened before the Guardian make you know you you have to be reactive to what other people are saying I think you were really led in that and I think you helped uh push other people followed you in that but you were also you know following things that were already shifting um I found it really helpful actually so I wouldn't go control or f climate change and change everything to the climate crisis because sometimes we are talking about you know scientifically we might be talking about climate change um, which is a different separate or larger separate thing. But the climate crisis, it adds more precision to our language. Uh, as you know, when I think when we have new words and new phrases, we get more precision. And I think it's been something that's been missing for a while, actually, is being able to call out this specific thing. It's not uh, fluctuations in climate that are to do with dust from volcanoes or the sun or all the other things that might cause climate change. This is something... Uh, that humans have been doing intensely for a few hundred years, really, really intensely for the last 50. Uh, and that's something that we should be reflecting on. And it's really good that there's a special phrase for it. John, do you think it's important? Oh, I was among many people who, who lobbied for this change. Um, I, w- I would say that one of the keys to the change was our readers, because we had been asking for that time for people to you know, support The Guardian, to become members, to donate. And what we found was that people tend to donate after environment stories more than most other types of stories. Uh, many of our readers like the fact that The Guardian invests more in environmental journalism than almost any other media, uh, certainly at that time. And, and so our readers wanted us to do more on the environment and to push harder and to recognise the urgency of the issue. As we've mentioned, this month marks the 200th anniversary of The Guardian, but we're not just sitting back and celebrating. We've got to look forward to the challenges we're going to face in the years ahead. And thinking about the climate crisis, the next century could be an extremely bad one for the planet. And even if we do manage to avert catastrophe... We're still going to massively have to change our lives. There's little doubt about that. And so I'd like to get some final thoughts from you all. How do you expect things to go over the coming years and how do you hope they'll go? Do you think we're really treating this as an emergency? Naomi? Well, I think we're behind the eight ball is where we are. I think there are many people who do now recognize this as an emergency. We've obviously seen a huge change here in the United States with the change of political leadership And I think all around the world, and we've seen enormous popular protests, we've seen young people, the school strikes, the Extinction Rebellion group in the United Kingdom, you know, we've seen tremendous energy on many, many different levels, on the grassroots, uh, on the level of cities. Many cities in America are taking really, really meaningful steps forward. So I think there's tremendous energy behind the issue now. I think there's tremendous commitment, but... Um, we're still facing resistance from the fossil fuel industry and their allies. They're still incredibly powerful in the United States government. And we're now 30 years behind the eight ball in terms of fixing this problem. And for me, this is the, the tragedy of this story. I do believe that eventually the scientific evidence will, you know, will win, so to speak, although I don't really like the language of winning and losing. But I think, you know, the world has recognized the, 
scientific realities of climate change. And I think we will act on it, particularly in the United States, but actually even more so in some other countries like Australia. We can definitely get 80 to 90 percent of our energy needs from existing technologies without any new scientific miracle. But it takes time to develop technological infrastructure. It takes time to change economic and cultural systems. And we know from the history of technology that big technological change can be achieved, you know, let's say between one and three decades is a figure that would make sense from the history of technology. So if we had started on this in 1992, when the United States, the United Kingdom and 190 other countries signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, we could have fixed this problem by now. And this is why I think that the fossil fuel industry has enormous historical and maybe legal accountability for the work they did consciously and deliberately to prevent us from acting on what we knew scientifically. Alice, what, what about you? Well, I think all of us need to acknowledge that we are in a really bad place and that probably involves a bit of grief, that bit leads, involves a bit of anger um, and fury even. I think we should let ourselves feel those emotions if we need to. We are living like our ancestors' dystopias and we should appreciate that. We've left it really, really late. But there is, um, as Naomi was saying, that we've got the technologies to take action. We have, uh, we know it is is possible. Finally, I think we've really built a, a a desire for action. Although I'd also say there's been a desire for action there for a long time. I think we've got to a point where climate concern has stopped happening in bubbles and has become something that's just here and is going to stay. And that demand and that loud cry for action, uh, sometimes really angry, very fearful cry for action, is something that people can't just bury away anymore. Um, I think we will act, how fast we act and how well we act is still still to be seen. And something that will happen, certainly, one thing I do know will happen is that we will be living with climate change. You know, now we're having to work at an immense speed, at an absolutely almost unimaginable speed, and to do so with over a degrees global warming already. And even if we work incredibly fast, incredibly cleverly, uh, it will be impossible to protect everyone from climate change because people are already suffering from it. And it's gonna, that is going to get worse even whilst we protect ourselves. I'm also worried whether we act in a just way and whether we'll just create, you know, some safe little solar powered bubbles for the Elon Musks of the world and lots of the rest of us will be left to suffer or whether we will create new green jobs uh, and think about it in a way that brings everyone together to uh, and th- takes care of the most vulnerable in society first. Um, I am worried that that's not what's going to happen. And I'm really worried about the new inequalities that badly acted climate action will create as well as the new inequalities that climate change will create and that potentially the 2020s and the 2030s will be us battling both of those things. And John, a few final thoughts from you? 200 years since The Guardian um, was first published, uh, it's almost the history of the Industrial Revolution. So incredible changes have happened over the past 200 years and and we've charted them um, as a newspaper. I hope we can continue to chart them for another 200 years, but I think that's very much in the balance. I'm always asked, you know, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? For me, that, that's not really the right question anymore. I think too much hope makes you complacent. We've now locked in uh, a great deal of, of changes that are going to be awful. It's going to be very hard to save most of the coral reef systems a very large number of the glaciers and this will affect hundreds of millions of people as well as lots of other species so if we just 
carry on as before and assume that geoengineering is going to fix everything some some point in the future, then I think um, we're in serious, serious trouble. I think it's important to look at the sort of the doomsday scenarios, really, you know, don't run away from them and assume that everything's going to be all right. Don't just bury your head in the sand. I, I, I think you have to go through that doomism, if you like, but not be sucked into it, not give up, keep fighting and, and recognize that that is absolutely not inevitable. If we make the right kind of changes now, we can stop ourselves reaching a really awful situation and be pushing for a much better world. I think that's a really brilliant note to finish on. So I'd like to say thanks to John, Naomi and Alice for joining me today. You can find links to Naomi and Alice's books on the podcast episode webpage. And John's latest pieces are on The Guardian's new series, Our Disappearing Glaciers, which is the topic we'll be exploring on the podcast next week. Don't forget, you can be part of the celebration of The Guardian's 200th birthday. Find out what else we have in store, watch videos, discover other podcasts and take part in events, such as The Guardian at 200, made in Manchester on May the 11th. It's all at theguardian.com forward slash 200. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.